Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once, it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. It's hard to describe. You know, it's not necessarily valued in this society, but just having a an older man, a powerful man at your shoulder is, I think, really important for for men as their as their souls are developing, developing, developing. The Medicine Path podcast is an ongoing exploration into the intersections of spirituality, depth psychology, and psychedelics. The Medicine Path is a wholly independent and listener-supported project. So please consider becoming a supporter at patreon.com forward slash medicine path or by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. You can find out more information at medicinepathpodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Brian James. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I speak with two OGs of the mythopoetic men's movement, Walton Stanley and Timothy Young. Walton and Tim currently organize the Minnesota Men's Conference and were there way back in 1984 when it was founded by poet Robert Bly. In our conversation, they share some great stories about the early days and talk about how men's work has contributed to their lives and local communities. They also offer their perspective on how men's work has evolved over the years and where they see it going in the future. And finally, they address some of the criticisms against the early men's movement as being a reaction against feminism. Over the years, I've received so much inspiration and encouragement from listening to the Minnesota Men's Conference archival recordings featuring wise elders like Robert Bly, Michael Mead, James Hillman, Robert Moore, and Martine Prechtel. So I'm deeply grateful to Walton and Tim for keeping the home fire burning over there in the Northeast and for generously sharing the collective wisdom from decades of men's conferences for free. So I highly recommend subscribing to the Minnesota Men's Conference YouTube channel. And if you're interested in attending the conference in person, please visit minnesotamensconference.com. Now please sit back relax, and enjoy my conversation with Walton Stanley and Timothy Young on The Medicine Path. Okay, well, I'm here with uh, Tim Young and Walton Stanley, and I just uh, first want to welcome you guys to the podcast. It's the first time I've had 
two people on at the same time. Well, hello, Brian. Yeah, hey, Brian. We'll we'll try not to uh, to make a mess of it here. <laughs> yeah, I'll do my best too. Um, I think it might be helpful if you guys just started by introducing yourselves and talking a little bit about um, you know what you do. And that'll help uh, people just listening identify your voices too. So if you could say your name and just a little bit about yourself, that'd be great. Sure, I, I, I'll, I'll start. I'm uh, Walton Stanley. So I live in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota and uh, have been involved with the Minnesota Men's Conferences since the, uh, the first one in 1984 where I, I met uh, Tim Young uh, and, uh, and a number of other guys. Um, and uh, now I, uh, I help to produce and, and lead the men's conferences and uh, carry stories into the conferences. Great. Hey, Tim. And I'm Tim Young. Oh, I'm Tim Young. Like, uh, likewise, I met Walton at the very first men's conference in 1984, northern Minnesota. Uh, I'm a a poet with uh, my fifth book coming out this fall. Uh, I've been involved with the conference in many different uh, uh, positions, organized a few. Uh, I even washed dishes for a few years, I, you know. Uh, but it's not only the men's conference, the Minnesota Men's Conference, that uh, we've been involved in. Walt and I have also been involved in uh, the local uh, men's work for ever since the beginning. We had a, a men's council for a number of years and we were in a small men's group for, or we still are in a small men's group after 38, 39 years. Uh, so we've had a lot of experience in this, uh, in this area. Yeah. And I want to thank our friend Asher in Australia, who runs a, a platform called The Fifth Direction, inspired by Robert Bly's work. And uh, he uh, he works with you guys as kind of elders from afar. And he's the one who put us together. So just a shout out to Asher in Australia. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Asher is, uh, has a, attended some of our conferences uh, virtually, along with some of the other uh, uh, guys from Australia. So uh, it's been uh, lovely getting to know, uh, getting to know, know them, even if it's uh, through the uh, technological medium. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, you know, I've been very interested in the whole history of the men's movement, and uh, I'm a big fan and student of Robert Bly's work and some of the other people that came out of that whole scene. And um, I know other people are too. Every time I do, like when Robert Bly died last year, I had a few people on who knew him pretty well to talk about him. And I got an outpouring of messages from people who had been touched by his work directly over the years or through the recordings that you guys at the Minnesota Men's Conference have been putting out steadfastly for years. Um, so it's obvious that there's like a lot of love and respect for this guy. And um, I love to hear the stories of the old days, how it all went down to kind of like help bring it to life for me and for others to understand what it was all about and what was going on beyond the way maybe the media covered it at the time or even now looking back. Mm -hmm. So I would love to start out if you guys could talk about um, what it was like at the, at the beginning there. Like, how did you find out about it initially? Uh, and uh, 
maybe talk about what that yeah. first conference or two was actually like. Yeah. I'll I'd like to start, Walton, because okay, I met yeah. Robert. I met Robert Bly uh, a couple of years before the first men's conference. Uh, I was studying poetry uh, in graduate school at the University of Minnesota, and Robert came to spend uh, a couple seminars with us. And after one seminar, he says, uh, "Would you come with me? I have to do a poetry reading at another." college and i just love to have somebody around <laughs> uh, because these were um, quite young college students whereas i was at that time 30 years old and robert i followed robert and he gave this incredible reading and at the time he was doing poetry with a dulcimer accompanying himself with a dulcimer and for years at men's conferences, he would accompany his poetry with a, a, a bazooki. Uh, but at that poetry reading, when he finished the poems, he brought the dulcimer over and set it on my lap. And it's at that time I says, oh, I have to know more about this man. I love what he is doing. And a year later, Walton and I, although we didn't meet, it was February of 84, Robert Bly did an evening where he told the story of Iron John. And the, the, the church basement where we were at was filled with men. And uh, I was astonished. I had never heard fairy tales uh, used in that way. And I'd been studying literature <laughs> my my whole adult life. So I got hooked. Walton, you were at that that evening, right? Yep, yeah, I was in fact. Uh, so I was in a, uh, I, I kind of fell into a, a, a small men's group because uh, my wife was in a women's group. And uh, so she and a number of women were getting together for breakfasts on, you know, uh, Sundays periodically. and. And uh, a bunch of guys who were partners of those women said, well, you know, we can have breakfast too. So we started meeting. And uh, eventually, uh, you know, we, we kind of continued meeting and expanded the group a little bit. And, uh, and one guy uh, one day uh, brought in an article from uh, New Age Magazine, which was an interview with Robert Bly talking about the Iron John story and the, um, effects of the loss of initiation of male initiation in society. And uh, we we're fascinated by the article and very energized. Um, and uh, and shortly thereafter, Robert was giving the reading that Tim was talking about uh, in Minneapolis. And so our our men's group went. And at that reading, Robert kind of said, uh, well, you know, uh, I've done a couple of these events for men in California and I think one in Pennsylvania or something. That's about time we did one here in Minnesota. So if anyone's interested, just put your name down on a sheet of paper here. And he passed a sheet of paper around and, and we all signed up. And one of the guys in my men's group, you know, grabbed the paper and said, I will organize this conference. And, and uh and uh, so that that's kind of how that fell out. And that was the 1984 uh, conference. Mm. 
that's interesting like to hear that there was already men's groups happening uh like small local men's groups you know i you know i was born in 74 so i kind of missed all of that or i was very young when it was going on and i'd hear uh echoes of it from you know iron john yeah. coming out and king warrior magician lover but i always just kind of assumed that men's groups kind of started following the men's conferences and the whole men's movement yeah well i, I think a lot of them did like i said ours was just kind of a reaction to well our all our partners are having breakfast why don't we you know yeah. burn some french toast together you know so um but but a number of the guys there were um you know fairly connected with uh you know, with uh, spiritual matters and things like that. So it's not a surprise um, that that we kind of found that or it found, you know, that that article found us. Hmm. Um, we also read a poem in that group called Men Don't Dance in America. And then uh, at the conference, I met the author of that poem, who's sitting right here on the other screen right now, too. So. Oh, wow. Um you know, I, uh, a few years ago, I was given a box full of old yoga journal magazines. Um, I've been a yoga teacher for many years. And in this box of musty old yoga journal magazines from the 80s was an art, uh, an issue that had Robert Bly on the cover, like his big face on the cover of yoga journal magazine, which now just seems crazy, like that there would be that kind of crossover but I guess in the 80s, the new age was uh, there was a lot of um, cross pollination and, and mixing and matching. And so I guess maybe at that time it wouldn't be so um, uh, I don't know what the right word is, but so out of the blue to see him on a yoga magazine. Yeah. And, and to my knowledge, I, I don't remember, ever recall Robert doing yoga, but um, <laughs> but uh, but but as you're saying, there was a lot of kind of cross pollination and yeah, yeah and uh, exchange of ideas and thoughts. So uh, you know, it, it it's not unusual. The first conference we did have a we did have yeah. a, a yoga teacher, uh, uh, Richard Close, who's an artist, a sculptor, and a yoga teacher. And, yeah. and and Robert was bending over and doing a number of things, and it was at that uh, at. The first time I ever did yoga, Robert was seated, uh, was right next to me. And as we're bending over and doing these things, he leaned over and growled and bit me in the shoulder. <laughs> he was, he was, that's how he dealt with this discomfort, I believe. <laughs> but it was very playful and wonderful uh, to have that happen. Uh, you know, I'm not sure if he had recognized me from the poetry seminar uh, earlier the, the year before or not, but uh, we've had a delightful few days there with Robert. Mm. Yeah. Could you guys talk a little bit about that first conference? Like, um, where did it take place? How many men were involved? Who were the speakers? And kind of give us a sense of the whole feeling of the thing. Yeah. Well, it was, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it it was a, a kind of a seminal conference i think I, I i'm i'm thinking there were what maybe 50 or 60 men tim 63 like i count it again okay 63 <laughs> men there it was at a, a, a ymca camp called camp ouija which is uh 
in uh, north of Ely, Minnesota, which is far up as I, on a lake. It's on a lake on the boundary water. So there's there's not uh, there's not very many uh, cabins other than Y camps and things on that lake. So you you don't see lights across the lake uh, very much there. And so it gets very dark at night and northern lights and that kind of thing are available. Um, uh, the other teachers were uh, Michael Mead uh, was there and uh, they were telling uh, Michael was kind of carrying uh, the stories he and Robert. Um, the story they were sharing uh, was uh, the main story w was Iron John, of course. Um, uh, and then uh, Terry Dobson, uh, who was an Aikido master and actually uh, brought Aikido to uh, North America, uh, was there. And then, as I mentioned, Richard Close, who was uh, uh, who uh, taught yoga and um, and was also a sculptor. Uh, so that was kind of the the staff. And uh, uh, you know, sadly, uh, Robert's uh, stepson uh, was killed. Uh, during that conference and so he got word i think on I think the conference started on a tuesday or when yeah monday or tuesday and he, uh, like the third day of the conference yeah robert uh, uh suddenly uh you know had to leave and you know was in terrible grief and um uh, uh and that uh uh that uh that seeing him grieve like that uh, you know, very much sort of grounded and, and uh, kind of galvanized uh, that group of men, I think, at that conference. It plunged us into a deep hole of grief. Because yeah. many of us, uh, many of us had gone there looking for the father. And then this, uh, uh, this artistic father figure, Robert Bly, with his white hair and his vibrancy uh, is suddenly uh, comes back into the room to tell us what happened. And he's weeping and he's falling down. Uh, he's, he's just in torment with grief. And we all gathered around him. And I had never experienced that type of uh, uh, grieving among men. Uh, and when Robert then left, then we had to decide if we're going to cut the the week short or continue. Uh, the, the leaders, Michael Mead, Terry and Richard and the organizers all decided that we would continue. So we continued for another four days without Robert. Uh, and something cracked. I know it cracked in me, hmm. uh, cracked away so many of my expectations. As I said, I. I'd been a uh, had a few poems published, and I had come into this conference with a fairly large ego. Uh, the title of that conference is uh, uh, "Why Do Men Dance?" And of course, uh, I had had this poem published uh, the previous year called "Men Don't Dance in America," so I had assumed it was, you know centered on my poem, which of course it wasn't, but that was my assumption. So my ego was split wide open. Uh, and at, at a very deep emotional and spiritual level. Uh, and 
we worked through that as a group of men uh, in an incredible way, uh, ritualistically, uh, conversationally, musically. Uh, we had a carnival where we were dancing and uh, letting the, the grief flow through our bodies. It was a very expressive week. Uh, now, to give you another, uh, another picture here, when I arrived back in St. Paul after that week, I stopped to see my father and my younger brothers who were, at that time, they were still living at home. And my youngest brother walked out of the house and I grabbed him and gave him a huge hug. And his eyes got extremely large and white because men didn't hug one another in those days. Um, so he didn't know what to expect. And he said that I, I looked like I was on fire and I didn't feel that, but that's what he said it looked like. Now my, all my brothers hug one another, you know, 38 years later, you know, it's not strange. Uh, and it's expected and uh, appreciated. Just one change in 38 years uh, for many men. Mm. Uh, yeah, thanks for sharing that story about Robert. I wasn't aware of that. Um, gosh, yeah. just kind of getting a sense of what that must have been like to be in the midst of that. I mean, grief has been such a predominant theme in Robert's work and the men's movement over the years. Why do you think uh, grief is so important as a way into the men's work? Well, I, I think we, uh, we live in a kind of an uh, ascent of culture, right? We're, we're trying to, uh, we're, we're in many cases trying to escape pain or discomfort. And, uh, and you know, religiously, the dominant religions are, you know, about ascent and getting to heaven. You know, nobody... Nobody wants to to go into the underworld, uh, but of course that's a that's a key component of real initiation is to is to drop down. And so, uh, you know, I think I think grief work and uh, allowing uh, grief to to take you down, and not uh, not stuffing it or ignoring it or pretending it isn't there, and you know, and 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 trying to stay attentive, is uh, is really key. And that 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 was a I think a key portion of men's work because men's work really is about, um, you know, even if we're, we don't, uh, do it, uh, actually, you know, do initiations, it, you know, it's about moving toward initiation. Uh, you know, it was the, the lack of initiation that, you know, uh, that Robert was writing about in Iron John. And so, um, uh, all of the stories, uh, you know, have some form of uh, of going down in them, and um, you know, and and you know, you have to, you know, when you're going down, it it often entails uh, entails grief and a you know a kind of a breaking through of that because mm -hmm. everyone has had some kind of trauma and just to kind of cover it up with a new layer of paint is you know not helpful. So. What I've found is, and uh, that week uh, exemplified it, is the grief 
it cut through my expectations. It cut through my cerebral uh, uh, ego and allowed my emotions to go deep enough and at the same time to be exposed to other men, to be exposed to the natural world. Uh, I wasn't carrying a lot of shame about that grief. And over the years, what I've found is that the depth of grief that I, and I don't deliberately go after grief, but after I have suffered grief and moved back out through the suffering, there, there's more access for the, uh, the joy of life to come through. Mm. Uh, because the more we paint over grief, uh, you know, the more we deprive joy of coming through. And to be fully human, I think we have to, we have to have both of those at different times when it's appropriate, because both joy and grief will come when we least expect it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as you guys were talking about it, um, came to mind that uh, maybe it's grief that initiates us into uh, a fuller expression of what it means to be a man or into a fuller emotional life. Um, And I think for a lot of us, uh, it's easy to connect with anger. It's such a kind of warrior energy and it's uh, very defensive, but it seems to me that um, grief is what cracks us open. Yeah. Anger is a shield. uh, And grief is uh, what so many of our, uh, our veteran friends have to deal with. Uh, they have to go through the grieving process after the PTSD or to grieve through the PTSD. And sometimes it's repetitive, repetitive, repetitive. But I know that the men that have processed the grief in that way, uh, even after a, a simple ritual, their faces are on fire. Their faces are lit up. And that that light may fade again. Uh, but there'll be time for another ritual. And I think that's what uh, we have to pay attention to. Those, uh, those patterns and those cycles. And if we ignore it and just stuff it, you know, we become uh, psychically and spiritually constipated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I hear a lot of people, you know, um, there's a famous Canadian teacher named Stephen Jenkinson, who I've had on the podcast yeah. four times. He's been a really good teacher of mine. Uh, he, a documentary was done about him years ago that introduced him to a wider public called Grief Walker. And he wrote a book called uh, Die Wise, and uh, I think really spawned a, a whole new resurgence of people interested in death, dying, and grief work. So I hear people talk about um, needing to go into grief or to process grief, but often I don't think they have a clear idea of how to do quote unquote grief work. I'm wondering. Um, what you guys have learned over the years of doing the men's work in the conferences, if you could offer some, not a prescriptive how-to or anything like that, but some ideas of how grief work happens or how to process grief. Well, I, I think it's, uh, 
you, you know, when, when you actually uh, make the grief conscious, um, when you actually, in essence, go down as the stories would have it. So, you know, if you're, you know, the, the dark man sooty brother or the devil sooty brother, you know, he, he, he goes under the earth for seven years and tends the fires and cooks things off. But, you know, you could look at that as a, as a place where you're, you're doing a lot of kind of ashy work. And, and um, you know, that, that deep level uh, of things, uh, which includes uh, grief and uh, processing and cooking that kind of trauma actually provides, um, you know, in the stories, it's down under the earth that where the gold, where the treasure resides, right? Or the power or the magic and those kinds of things. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's true. When you look at artists, uh, you know, like I was one time doing short little biographies of a number of poets and it was incredible. Virtually all of them had a period where, you know, someone had given them a, a little shitty cabin they didn't care about out in the back 40 and they had this time where they were you know living like a hermit and you know barely going to town and and but they were you know they were working on their craft in that time and that's what you know in essence helped them find their their poetic voice and their poetic sense you know the the poetry came to them through that that you know difficult uh you know low status ashy work um, and, and I think that, you know, that can be true of, of, of any art or of any, um, you know, any, uh, uh, a genius, if you will, uh, that, um, that, that, that's, that's what's required, uh, that, that hard ashy work. And that work also, I think, uh, grounds a person. You, you'll often see people who are, you know, brilliant and attentive and, and, you know, at a young age and uh, achieve success. And then, you know, there's a, there's a crash or they, you know, they sell out or burn out or those kinds of things. But uh, it's doing that hard, ashy work that is, uh, I think, uh, key to in increasing our ambit of our, our capabilities and and also rooting us uh, in that so we don't lose our way. That's right. Even Robert Bly went through that period uh, after uh, graduating from Harvard when he was living in uh, a simple little basement apartment, I believe it was a basement apartment in New York. And he made money by uh, painting <laughs> while he was going back and forth to the libraries, while he was studying Pablo Neruda and other poets and uh, struggling as a poet for years in that way. It, uh, he, he did his uh, his grief work coming out of the plains, you know, and being out in the East Coast, coming off the plains. When I was in graduate school, uh, one of the professors told me a story about uh, when Robert first went to Harvard. Uh, he was uh, he was a bit embarrassed, I think, uh, to be out on the West Coast with. Uh, or on the East Coast, and it, wow, it, <laughs> in, in Harvard, people would ask, well, where's your father's money from? Well, Robert was from a small farmer in Madison, Minnesota, and he would say, well, 
my father's in land and cattle, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Uh, and there's a few documentaries about Robert's early days as a poet. And even long before the men's work and before he was uh, a noted poet, you know, he was working on the farm, shoveling manure, you know, working in his chicken coop that he had uh, turned into a study. So Robert did his work as a young man. And I think that's something that those of us who are older have to remind the younger men that uh, you still have to go through this work. You know, if you want to have a, I won't use in that successful soul, but if you want to have a full soul, and soulful life you have to go through these stretches hey tim you got an air raid siren going off behind you it's, yes it's the first monday of the month it happens just a, a practice drill it happens it's right down the street i'm sorry <laughs> uh, it brings me back to my childhood we had a big air raid siren in our suburban neighborhood and uh in the 80s they would do those tests like every month yeah but that was like during the cold war and you know these <laughs> movies about nuclear disaster coming out on tv and we we're yeah. terrified well, for, for us it's tornado uh in serious storms like that that they prepare us for uh interesting so we're like invoking robert's great spirit come blowing yeah. through <laughs> yeah He's going to come and uh, mess things up and turn things over for us. Even if it's only a test. The big horn. <laughs> <laughs> Foghorn, uh, leghorn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so um, when I'm listening to you guys talk about grief work, you're not being very uh, specific, but kind of the themes I'm hearing are um, maybe we could say allowing yourself to have a, a dark period allowing yourself to, to go down. Um, there sounds like, uh, there's humility involved. Um, I, yeah. I think, yeah, I, I think that, well, yeah, humility comes from the, you know, as a root word of, of humus, you know, it's the soil earth, you know, so it is going down into that. But, um, uh, you know, the other thing I, I would say that the, uh, that the early conferences and you know indeed the later ones as well uh, the work with men's conferences uh, gave us was the idea that we didn't have to necessarily take that grief um, to uh, to a woman or to a partner we right. could look to other men uh, to uh, you know to help us contain that grief and when things like that happen you know you can get your your brothers together and go light a little fire in the woods and, 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 uh, you know, do what needs to be done, you know, and, uh, you know, we, you know, we, we, we still do that. And I think that's, that's a real important role for many of the, you know, kind of men's small men's groups that came out of, of the men's conferences in the, in the early days and, and hopefully still do. Yeah. 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 And I think it's not just the grief over, um, maybe a loss that we've experienced in our life, but isn't there also something to grieving like um, 
experiences that we've lacked in our life, like an initiation or having the blessing of the father, that kind of thing. And, and bringing that to the forefront of men's consciousness to recognize uh, what, what they're missing in a way. And, and then honestly grieving that. Yeah, absolutely. Like both you guys started out by saying, I think that you're looking for your father in seeking and going to the men's conference. Yeah. That was not, that, that wasn't my intention to put it that way. There were many men in that conference. I had a long lasting and uh, intense relationship with my father. And I know Walton also had, uh, and I would say my, for the most part, my relationship was healthy with my father. Uh, but I know many men, uh, who have come to the conferences, they're always looking for the father. Yeah. And, and I think there's a, there's a different, you know, there's a, there's a, there's fathering and there's different fathering, you know, there's your, your biological, your family father. Um, and as Tim said, I, I had a pretty good relationship with my father, but, um, uh, you know, there's also kind of a, you know, a, a father of the soul, if you will, or, you know, and in, in initiations, that would be your, your godfather, right? Or your the initiator, right? And so, um, and we certainly, you know, you know, different people kind of take that role a little bit in society, but, it, but it's, it's very unconscious in, in modern culture. So I think the idea was to, uh, you know, connect with some older men and 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 have that kind of uh, that kind of uh, spiritual and soul connection uh, to deepen your soul. And sometimes, you know, as we were talking about the other day with you, Brian, it, you know, it it, it isn't a uh, it, it isn't a you know a formal thing where someone's sitting down and you know passing you know wisdom to you necessarily. I mean, they are, but they aren't. Uh, I remember, you know, an example is the, the first conference. Um, yeah, you know, my, of course, Robert left and, you know, Michael Mead stepped in and, and as a relatively young man, looking back on it now, I think Michael was probably in his forties when that conference took place, you know, he did a remarkable job holding that container, you know, and, and building that connection. But also for me, um, I hung out a lot at that conference with uh, Terry Dobson, the Aikido master. And uh, Terry was just this, uh, you know, amazing presence and giant big character, you know, and there was a lot of, it wasn't anything Terry taught me. I, I, I don't have any real Aikido skills. I mean, there were things he taught me, but, but a lot of it was just kind of a shoulder to shoulder intimacy with Terry. There was a, there was this bodily connection of here's an older man who's in, enormously powerful and I'm standing at his shoulder and something is being transferred. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and that's, that's really uh, an, an important uh, element that is hard to, it's hard to describe it. You know, it's not necessarily valued in this society, but just having a, an older man, a powerful man at your shoulder is, I think, really important for for men as their as their souls are developing. I'd like yeah. to follow up on that because uh, what struck me with Terry, uh, I remember when he brought the crosscut saw saw out 
and he teamed us up, two men on a crosscut saw. Uh, and I, you know, I had grown up. My father had woodlands. I had been cutting wood my entire life. But Terry had us on this crosscut saw, and we had to learn how to let go. Pull, let go. Pull, let go. Working in tandem with another man. And suddenly, the metaphors sunk into my head and into my soul. I had totally ignored that. I didn't pay attention to that, even though I grew up with saws. I have cross-cut saws in my garage right now as a reminder of that. That's how you have to work with another man. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like the meaning comes through the embodied experience rather than through yeah. the head with a bunch of ideas and concepts. Yeah, yeah. I, I really believe that, too. Um, I was on a call with one of my mentors, Thomas Moore, this morning. And um, he uh, paraphrased the Buddha's teaching that healing happens through presence. Yeah. And I was reminded of that when you're talking, Walton, about being next to the Aikido master. And I can imagine uh, being in his presence and getting a, a sense of a, a man who's really embodied, who's powerful, but probably quite graceful as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And I was thinking too, Walton, like what you're talking about, uh, like when we're talking about looking for the father, there's many types of fathering, uh, I think you said. And um, I think that's a really important point that uh, different men can fulfill different uh, aspects of the father, like the archetypal father for us. And not to kind of uh, put that all on our actual father. And like in my instance, it was finding um, a kind of a spiritual father who could initiate me into the kind of esoteric spirituality and things that I was interested in that my father, my actual father had no relationship to. Right. And, and so once um, I met that spiritual father and he gave me his blessing by his presence and attention and encouragement, I was able to release a lot of resentment toward my own father for not being able to see me in that way or relate to me in that way. Yeah. And so it was that kind of healing that happened through the another kind of fathering or somebody who could fulfill a different aspect of the father. Yeah, and, and I, I think that's key. I mean, even, regardless of what your relationship with your, you know, family father is, you know, there there are things that 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 are precluded from him giving that to you. It has to come from somewhere else. And I would say the same thing about. Um, sons there is no way that i can give my son the things that he needs to be full uh he he was fortunate that i had friends like walton and some of the others around occasionally uh they could see the things in my son that i couldn't see yeah. simply because i was father mm -hmm. yeah so having a, a band of uncles around could be really yeah. helpful for a young boy growing up yeah, very important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, I think that's something that's never really talked about is the role of the uncle. You know, we hear a lot about uh, father complexes and, um, you know, the kind of spiritual father, the guru type thing. But uh, yeah, there's a really important role of the, the, the kind of men on the periphery of the nuclear family, the uncles and friends mm-hmm. of the, the actual father. Yeah. 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 Tr- traditionally, and in, in many cultures that practice initiation, it's the it's the maternal uncle that that kind of runs the initiation for the young man or supports him through that or puts him through that. Um, and so it's, you know, it's a connection to the maternal line and things like that as well. But yeah, I think, yeah, that kind of uncle, whether it's through a family or, or just through your father's friends uh, kind of thing uh, or your mother's male friends, um, but someone that, um, that kind of, steps into that role. And I think it helps having a lot of, uh, you know, kind of crazy uncles too, you know, for young men to meet a lot of uh, characters, you know, you know, James Hillman, one of the things he talked about was, you know, it was important to introduce your children to a lot of characters um, uh, in that way. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. So they can see that uh, there's not just one way to be a a man or a woman, you know, looking at the father or the mother, But uh, that uh, masculinity can take all these different expressions. And right. Just, yeah, it's my aspiration to be the crazy uncle, by the way. I don't have <laughs> kids, of my, kids of my own, but if I'm going to be anything, it's going to be the crazy uncle who uh, shows my nephews or other kids that, uh, oh, you can also do that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that's right. And, you know, it's about the, you know, when when the soul is really connected with, you know, it, it tends to... Uh, you know, when you become who you really are meant to be, you, you, you tend to take on some eccentricities and things get a little, uh, you know, get a little crazy and a little strange because, <laughs> you know, you're not supposed to be a cog in a machine, right? Yeah. Uh, as I've gotten older, I've become that crazy, crazy uncle. I don't consider myself crazy, but uh, my nephews, uh, that's kind of the way they the way they talk to me i'm i'm the alternative uh in many ways <laughs> yeah but like the the uncle who when they come over to your house they can like kind of start sifting through the bookshelves and finding all these weird strange books or these like you know you've got some of the interesting objects behind you in your office yep. there that's so important like i remember going to my weird uncle who uh, came into the family by marriage and uh, he was Italian, so he was like extra weird, um, my uncle Ezio. But I remember going over to his house, and as a really young kid, he could see my eccentricity in me, 
And he turned me on to like people like Frank Zappa and Captain Beefheart and yeah. Peter Gabriel, like all this kind of weirdo music that my parents just weren't into. Uh, and so I loved going over to his place because he'd have all these like crazy rock posters up and like weird books and magazines and stuff I would never be exposed to at home. Yeah. Yeah. And um, if you're if yeah. you are crazy, I think it's important that the the child the child be exposed to the non-crazies. <laughs> they have to know how to deal with them too, because they'll see the craziness in the the, the so-called normals. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, you know, as someone else who's been uh, really important to me over the years is Martine Prechtel. And I know Robert uh, kind of discovered him, right? And brought him in to the different conferences. Can you talk a little bit about like what it was like when uh, Martine arrived on the scene? Yeah, that was, uh, that was a, a, I think, a huge shift in, in yes. the life of those conferences. Uh, you know, Martine was, uh, you know, is the, the you know, the real deal. He's been through, uh, you know, indigenous initiations, you know, him and, and Maladoma Somme came a little before Martine. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, talk about crazy uncles. I mean, Martine came in and I think he had like six knives, big knives with him all, all the time. And this incredible, you know, hair of that top knot and weird, you know, vests and beadwork and jewelry and, uh, and, uh, uh, just uh, you know, just amazing uh, stories, and and then also Martine, um, uh, along I think with Maladoma, really opened the conference to uh, to taking ritual to a next level as uh, part of the conference. So there was a lot, you know, the early conferences. There was a lot of kind of lecture and discussion and stories and and things like that, and a lot of talking and sharing and processing and whatnot. Um, but uh, you know, uh, when Martine came in, the the emphasis shifted to moving all of that, you know, out into out into the field and and you know, literally into a field and and uh, you know, uh, dealing with uh, with ritual uh, ritual techniques and 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 elements. So um, and and that's something you know we've we've uh, we've carried on, and it's a it's a hugely important piece um, to. To in a way uh, uh, bring the work you're doing out of the merely personal and bring it back to to feed spirits and to uh, connect with the land that you're on. And in essence, many of the stories, you know, the rituals often come out of the stories in some way or or recapitulate the story. And and so in a way, the rituals are sort of dancing the story back into the land. Because of course the stories sort of come out of a land, but many of these stories come from different places, and so you know we're actually introducing them to this continent, this place, um, through those rituals. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, I think so. So uh, what I'm imagining is uh, you could be working through a story, and maybe uh, an image or a scene from the story kind of inspires you to go uh, create a ritual in a way, is that how it would work? Yeah, or it might inspire some aspect of a, of a shrine or, or you know, often the, the rituals are kind of a, involve kind of a journey and then out into some area where there's a, 
a shrine or something is processed or something is witnessed or uh, an offering is made often, that kind of thing. And then there's a there's a return to the community fire. I mean, that's the, the basic pattern of a lot of uh, rituals. You know, you kind of go out, you go through something, and then, you know, when it's time, you, you come back in and bring it all, bring that energy back to the community. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, I, I kind of lost my train of thought, but yes, that that's that's kind of the idea. And often, the the kind of stations or shrines or things like that will have some element that that in some way reflects or recalls or or reconstitutes the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we were talking about um, Martine and uh, what it was like when he arrived on the scene, and, and you brought up Maladoma. Uh, so when those guys entered the conferences. I can imagine that they brought um, maybe for the first time a non-European sensibility and non-European stories and rituals into it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Very, very much so. I mean, you know, there, I think people had, you know, there had been some stories that were non-European shared before them and some people had, had done some medicine work with non-Europeans at various places, but um, but yeah, Martine and and Maladoma Same were, I think, uh, huge uh, accelerators and influences of influencers in that that kind of ritual uh, work and and connecting to yeah. you know to actual medicine societies that you know that they'd been part of you know. Yeah, like connecting to living traditions and yeah, yeah, and and what Martine said and Maladoma too in his own way was that uh, you know their what they'd been tasked with was uh, was that the elders had seen that that way of life was essentially dying. The villages were oppressed and messed up, and you know things like that. And and their mission, if you will, was to kind of replant the medicine you know, in, in the heart of the enemy. Right. Mm. Yeah. And one of the things that I wanted to reiterate was both Martine and Melodoma kept reinforcing the importance of the larger community. Yeah. We, we didn't go through these rituals just for personal enlightenment. We had to feed the community. We had to feed the environment around us. Uh, and so we were always encouraged. Martine always encouraged us to uh, do rituals together, to gather together. Uh, it was important. And he uh, basically said that at some day, I'm, I'm not going to be around to help you guys. You guys have to learn this yourself. Uh, and it's difficult because I think we've tried to keep learning this. Uh, Martin's back in the mountains again. Uh, we can't just give him a phone call and say, well, what should we do? So we have to tap into our ancestral depths, into the memory depths that uh, Martin and Maladoma introduced us and do the best we can. And I think that's what we've been trying to do with the Minnesota Men's Conference. and. Uh, we have Miguel Rivera uh, still with us. He was at that very first men's conference that Martin was at. They came in and 
I thought they had known each other a long time, but they had only recently met at that first men's conference. Uh, so we, these threads keep, uh, keep us together. You know, Miguel now, that's uh, 30 years ago that Miguel showed up uh, and a number of, number of us have been doing this for 40 years. Uh, and uh, Walton's son, my son, a couple other young fellas have all participated over the years. Um, it's, it takes a long time for this uh, interactivity to come out like a, uh, and blossom in the natural environment. Uh, I remember Robert Bly when he first started he says, don't expect a whole lot of this to happen overnight. This might take 150, 200 years for it to fully, to fully come to fruition. Mm. And after 40 years, I see that. Yeah. I, I think it's important to note too, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I think uh, Martin and Maladoma would both say that it was important for us uh, kind of of the European diaspora, you know, these displaced Europeans who find themselves a couple generations later on this, this quote unquote new land, that's important for us not to just appropriate the Guatemalan or African rituals and songs, yep. but to be inspired by the land that we find ourselves on and the stories from our own ancestry and, and yep. somehow within that form a new kind of ritual. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that that's absolutely right, uh, Brian. Uh, I, I think they they would both agree and and had said much much the same thing. You know, there, there's a story. Mark Martine brought some corn. It was a there, there's kind of a sacred patch of corn that's used in ritual and that kind of thing in the the village. And um, and he brought some of that corn and he passed it out to people in various places. And uh, you know, not really knowing if it would really germinate, you know, but uh, but a, a, a number of the guys actually did get a, did get a crop to grow of the corn. But when they brought it back, it looked completely different than the corn that had been planted, you know. And it was, you know, I mean, the realization was like, okay, well. They're planting it, but they're planting it in different soil. It's a different environment. It's, there's different medicine. There's different spirits. And uh, yeah, it's going to look different here than it did down there. So, hmm. Tim, were you going to say something? Yeah, Gary Snyder, the poet, uh, in Mother Earth News back in the early 80s, there was an article about Gary Snyder. And he mentioned that he had been talking to, I believe, a Blackfeet uh, elder and, and asked him what he thought about uh, the white race. And the elder told him, he said, I'm not too worried, he said, because uh, you haven't been on the land long enough yet. When you can start speaking for the land, things are going to change because you'll be feeling and connected with the land and the land is going to to change you and it's going to change itself. Uh, and that gave me an incredible amount of hope when I read that, you know, because, you know, we're, we're acting at a, at a human level, not a, not at the level of uh, the earth at this 
pace of the of the earth you know uh, and especially now that we have all of this technology that we are instantaneously connecting around the globe uh, you know we have to remind ourselves that the earth is operating at a different pace than we are mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and um culture moves more slowly too like it's like the pace of the soul right it's just it's yep. moving at a much slower pace than the mind you know the kind of hermetic mind that's jumping around from thing to thing to thing um i think that's a really good point like if we think about it like those first conferences you now 1984 like 30 years ago or whatever close to it right 30 years ago isn't really a long time for those seeds to start germinating. Like, no. you know, I'm like the next generation on. Yep. It's only one generation for this stuff yep. to uh, start to grow and find its form. So it's still very quite young when you think about it that way. Yeah. You know, the, the other thing I, wa- I wanted to, to mention is that, uh, you know, I think we've used the the word men's movement and certainly that was bandied about at the time and and it got placed in uh, in su- juxtaposition to you know to feminism right you know like it was supposedly a reaction of course that caused a lot of friction and things like that i don't i don't necessarily think there was ever a movement there, there have been movements that's kind of sprung out of this in different ways or attempts to some people have attempted to create a movement out of it but i don't think it was ever at its core a a movement in the sense of a political movement it was more of a of a yeah of a looking at of a stopping and 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 a going down and looking at ways to to make some alchemical or soul changes but it uh you know it wasn't it wasn't analogous in a way to to the the women's movement which was about you know social and, and political and economic freedom for women and and justice for them you know that that wasn't what was going on with us yeah yeah you're right I, and i wanted to ask you about that because sometimes um what i've seen especially in uh, older articles about bly and uh the quote-unquote men's movement is it somehow like people's impression of it was something more like what the men's rights movement uh, that has cropped up yeah. what it is. Yeah. And it wasn't yeah. really about that at all. It was like maybe men's right to grieve or to feel, but it was a much different type of thing. It wasn't looking for uh, more prominence in the society or anything like that. So I find that strange how it could be equated. Like I had someone on the podcast recently who's an older guy and he wrote a, a book critiquing Robert Bly. Um, and his whole take on it was that it was anti-feminist. And I, I completely disagree. I think that's a naive take because if you if you listen to the lectures from that time or since, if you read Robert Bly's work, you can see that that's not what it was about at all. No. Right, and, and, and much of it was about connecting with the, with the interior feminine, with the, Psychic feminine, you know, right. The animating force, you know. Yeah, it was about honoring the feminine. Like he also had a conference called the Great Mother Conference, right? Yeah, which the men's conference has actually sprung out of the Great Mother Conference. Yes. They preceded them. And he was noticing there was 
that there was there seemed to be, you know, kind of an energy and a depth lacking in the men. You know, they were, you know, nice new age guys, but there was some kind of depth that was that was not there. And I, and I think that's what actually started his his questioning that led to Iron John and, and all yep. of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Robert, while he was writing Iron John, he was running a lot of the material past his daughters, you know, uh, to, to see how it felt to his daughters, which is, a, you know, so it, that was wonderful in that way. Uh, because Robert had uh, two daughters and a stepdaughter, and there's no way in the world, uh, and especially today, if you were to see Robert's daughters and stepdaughters, uh, they're all brilliant minds and uh, wonderful, uh, well-rounded people. Uh, and Robert included them. And you'll, you'll find it occasionally here and there in Iron John where he mentions his daughters, but uh, he, he actually came to our men's council and would uh, review chapters with us uh, as he was writing Iron John. Hmm. And so we were able to be involved in that. And that was the one of the great things about Robert. He wasn't... Uh, he was willing to share his uh, insecurities about what he was doing. Hmm. Yeah. The yeah, other thing I wanted to... Oh, I just I want to interject something there too. Sure. Like, um, the two teachers I hear Robert acknowledge the most are Marie-Louise von Franz, who taught him how to work with stories, particularly fairy stories. And Marion Woodman, who he did a number of uh, presentations with, and who I think really inspired him to bring the body into the work that he was doing. I think that was really inspired by Marion. So I'm glad to address this because, it, like I said, it came up in a recent um, podcast conversation that I had, and it's something I hear sometimes. It sounds like a bit like a, a knee-jerk reaction to the idea of a men's movement is that it's anti-feminist. And just wanted to put that to rest. Yeah. The other thing I was going to say is that I think in the in the, the kind of popular media, it, uh, you know, the work got mocked as a bunch of men going into the woods and, you know, painting themselves and pounding drums and, you know, and yeah, we were in the woods and we were pounding, pounding drums and things like that. But they they grabbed on to the image of the wild man, you know, the, the Iron John, the hairy man thing thing. Uh, and then mocked it as, you know, stockbrokers, you know, putting their tie around their head and painting their faces and banging on a drum. And, it, you know, and, and and that was just, you know, and kind of an easy way for them to dismiss or 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 process it in however they needed to process it, you know. But, um, you know, it reminds me of the the Goethe, uh, you know, statement, you know, tell a, tell a wise man or, or else keep silent because the mass man will mock it right away. And that that is what happened. The mass man did mock the work, but mm -hmm. at the core of the work was was uh, was very deep and beautiful. Mm -hmm. and, you know, was there silliness and mistakes and things that happened along the way? Sure. But it wasn't what was portrayed in the mass media. Yeah. Yeah. Just another 
instance of uh, men being ridiculed in mass media, like that was the time of also like, um, oh, that, what was that TV show? It was uh, Ed Bundy, the shoe salesman, married with children. Oh yeah. And, and then the Simpsons came out with Homer and it was just these idiotic men portrayed on the screen. And um, I think it was all part of it too, is that mocking. I remember seeing scenes like that in, uh, in, in uh, mainstream movies, like you said, the tie around the head and just looking ridiculous and uh, infantile. Yeah. Well, you know, I think it's important, like you guys have been doing this work a long time and, uh, Maybe you could talk a little bit about what the the real world consequences of the men's work and the men's conference have been in your lives and in the lives of some of the men who have uh, gone through it with you. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the initial consequence was it, it actually uh, gave me the, the very first conference gave me the grounding to feel like I could be capable of being a father. And, uh, you know, I, my, my daughter was born just before the second conference. So, um, uh, you know, that was a, that was a huge shift because, uh, you know, I, I, I did, you know, I did not feel that kind of groundedness before and, and connection to, um, to, a, to a kind of an ancestral power and, a, and capability in that way. Um, so uh, that was, you know, that was a, kind of the immediate um, effect of the first conference. Over the years, you know, um, you know, Tim and I have, and the men that I've been at the conference with have gone through, uh, you know, a lot of life together and have, you know, leaned on each other, sometimes leaned really hard on each other yeah. um, to, uh, to get through it. And, uh, you know, without the conferences, I would be, you know, kind of stuck with, you know, the nuclear family to lean on and not, not a community, you know, larger community. So, mm -hmm. so that, that's been enormous yeah. for me. Absolutely. Uh, I come from a large extended family and uh, like you, Brian, uh, my father is a working class uh, meat cutter. Uh, and I couldn't, uh, I couldn't go to them. Uh, about my interests and they supported me in a very physical way and they I, I learned a lot of physical things from them but the the artistic part of me uh it had nowhere to be to be and I was ascending you know I wanted to be the great American novelist I wanted to follow you know the, the path of the great poets uh, unfortunately, uh, I didn't have, I shouldn't say that. Unfortunately, uh, it's the, it was the wrong direction. <laughs> you know, I was ascending and Robert Bly, when I met him, it altered the path for me. It altered my direction. I was no longer going to be, uh, the great writer in this, in the way I had wanted to be. I was in the middle of uh, journalism uh, school. Uh, and when I had poetry published for the first time, suddenly I could see that 
oh, my life is my life can be totally different and extremely fulfilling without having those uh, successes that the, the culture was telling me I had to have. Um, and I've I've had great friendships. Uh, you know, I did. Robert Bly helped publish my first book. Uh, I would have never had that without Robert, possibly. Uh, and many of the friendships have continued to develop and expand in ways that I could have never imagined. I ended up teaching at a, at a youth correctional facility for eight years. That would never have even entered my mind had I not been involved in this work earlier. Uh, I have no idea what the effects are of that, but I know it, it helped me a lot. I learned a lot working with, uh, with those boys at the correctional facility. So uh, my life would have been a, a lot different. Hmm. And as I mentioned before, I can hug my brothers now without any shame. And in 1980, that would have never happened. The condescension and uh, uh, the mocking that that came if you hugged someone. And I'll give you a quick example. It was right after the first men's conference in 1984. One of the men who was there owned a Harley Davidson dealership. Uh, right near where I worked. And I walked into his shop. He was behind the counter. And he came out and we gave each other this enormous bear hug. It, on the floor of the Harley Davidson shop. And you can imagine all the bikers that were in there giving us the evil eye. And all of what they might have thought was going on. Now you can't go into a biker shop without the bikers giving one another a hug. <laughs> so things have changed in, in many different ways at many different levels. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think also just it culturally, I mean, I think you see men much more engaged with their children than they were uh, before yes. Robert Bly started. Um, so um, that was, uh, you know, that's a a huge and I think kind of little observed effect, but, but, uh, yeah. you know, it's not uncommon to see, uh, you know, dads out in the park with their kids or, you know, pushing, you know, hauling a little baby around or any of those things. There's much more engagement with, um, with our, our children, you know, um, which yeah. was a big part of what Robert was writing about, about the loss yeah. of that with the industrial revolution and men going out into the world and becoming kind of the, the fifties fathers that, yeah. is, the sons didn't know or the daughters didn't know either. In 1984, there was no such thing as a diaper changing table in a men's room at the, at the gas station. You know, they're all over. Yes. And the, and the, the, the most read poet in, uh, in America was Rod McEwen who wrote, you know, yep. the clouds from both sides now. And, and now the, the most read poet in America is, is Rumi. So I was going to say, yeah, it's got to be Rumi. <laughs> yeah. Robert was the first one to translate Rumi. 
Yeah, uh, yeah. here Coleman Barks, but Robert very much made that, uh, yep. you know, uh, part of the culture. Mm. That's great. Well, you guys have done such an incredible service stewarding this work uh, since you know Robert had to step back from it, and I'm curious, like you know, when you see new guys coming up, what do you think the future of men's work? looks like do you see anything shifting and changing or do you see anything on the horizon you know it's it's a that's a good question it's really it's really hard to say and it may be that uh, you know that men's work is not a uh you know is is less of a mass movement and more of uh you know a lot of men kind of going to ground or a lot of men getting together you know uh, around a, a small fire and sitting close and things like that. Um, yeah. Obviously, we're still producing conferences, uh, you know, and and they have varying attendances and things like that. Um, but um, uh, you know, it it may be that it's uh, you know a lot of men kind of uh, kind of to use an image from the stories, you know, riding the slow shaggy pony rather than a the the big warhorse, you know. Yeah. There's a life force that's moving through all of us. It's coming out of the earth. It's moving through our bodies. Uh, our bodies will uh, desire certain things. And I think ritual is one of those things that our bodies desire because our bodies cannot hold uh, trauma for long stretches. Uh, you know, our bodies wanna release trauma. Our bodies want to feel the joy that's moving through us. And the more that we're aware of this, uh, the more hope that I have already all over people are connecting. Just as we are right now through technology, over the airwaves, uh, we're connecting. It's not quite enough, but it's a way to share information. And once we have that information, you know, our bodies are going to want to process that information in ways that uh, we hadn't thought about before. Yeah. And ritual is a way to do it. Yeah. And the, the, the other thing I, I want to say is that I think the, um, the damage to, uh, to the world around us, mm -hmm. you know, to the climate, to the land, to the waters, to the air and things like that. Um, you know the the reaction may be and I, I hope part of it is is to do this kind of work is to yeah. is to engage re-engage and reacquaint ourselves you know uh, with the land with the water and to um to view those things as a you know as as the animated uh beings that they are um and to you know work to reestablish um the 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 original instructions for human beings uh, living on the planet. So, um, you know, I, I think as as things get worse, the, the need will get greater for for people to be able to do that. So, mm. yeah, well, let me just speak to uh, the legacy from where I sit. Uh, the groundwork that was laid by you guys and Robert and Michael and Martine and Maladoma all those years ago, I mean, the ripples are still rippling out. 
I had a guy contact me yesterday, uh, early 30s, who's discovered the Minnesota Men's Conference videos on YouTube. It's led him to read Iron John and get into Michael Mead's work. Um, so it's kind of, it's out there still working, uh, kind of awakening men to this other dimension of life that they may not get from their family or their culture and inspiring them to broaden their horizons and to become a more soulful and multifaceted man. So it's still happening and it may not be the kind of cultural movement that it was, you know, when it was new and, um, you know, had Robert Bly, like you said, this <laughs> amazing personality at the forefront, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's still having an effect, but maybe on a more grassroots level or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that that's very possible. I mean, I think the one danger is, is that, um, I mean, I think it's great that people access, you know, uh, that information that they go out and they read Iron John or uh, read the Sibling Society or, you know, follow Michael's work or any of that it, it is great. But, uh, you know, they should also know that part of the work is, is not simply being a, a passive consumer of information. The, re the real work involves, you know, kind of coming together uh, you know, with other men and, uh, and, uh, you know, sl slogging through some of that stuff and having that shoulder to shoulder intimacy we were talking about. Yeah, it's so important because, you know, we can stay in our magician minds and just collect all of the information and the, the, the goodies. Uh, but when we're together with men, that's when our, um, that's when our wounds get triggered often right and so then it brings up what needs to come up to be worked through yeah and also to create a container not just for yourself but for other men or for and even for younger men coming in you know so yeah you're gonna if you show up you're gonna trigger the right man in a very particular way that he needs to be triggered or <laughs> inspired if, yeah you know. yeah tim did you want to say something i was thinking about the heat that occurs uh and in alchemy, uh, there's a uh, there's a phrase that says, "Don't don't let your fire get hotter than that of freshly dropped horseshit." And that's where the processing takes place. You know, the processing in alchemy, the changes have to reach that level of heat. You don't want it to be, you know a blast furnace and so many uh ascendant people want to go into the you know fly away into the sun you know fly off into the farthest galaxy uh and experience that fire but true transformation occurs at a at a lower level of heat yeah you gotta you gotta get down in the shit exactly <laughs> yeah yeah, and, and cook slowly. Yep, yeah, that's right. Well, that's great, guys. Thanks so much for sharing your stories and uh, some of your wisdom that you've acquired over the years. We really appreciate it. I know there's other guys out there who are going to really um, appreciate this as well. So this isn't over. I mean, the Minnesota Men's Conference is still happening, even through COVID. What, uh, 
what's going on with it now? Are you guys going back to meeting in person? We are. We have a, a fall conference that's being held uh, near the Twin Cities at a Y camp, uh, actually just across the border in, in Hudson, Wisconsin. Um, so, yeah, uh, October, the weekend of October 7th, 8th and 9th, we're doing a three day in-person uh, conference. So invite uh, men to uh, to show up. Yeah. Yeah. If they need information, just go to our website, minnesotamensconference.com. Great. Yeah. The guy I spoke to yesterday, he's in Wisconsin. So I know I'm going to be sending him the link. That's for sure. Yes. Again, he's a guy who's read all the books, listened to all the lectures, but he hasn't met in person with a group of men before, which is a real, (laughs) its own unique thing. It's like a, it's like a football player who studies all of the plays and knows all of the plays, but you have to get on the field and actually play. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, guys. And, uh, you know, yep. maybe I'll make it out there one of these days while you're still around. That, that would be great. Love yeah. to see Likewise, Brian. Thank, thank you for having us. Yep. Yeah. Maybe when it's a little warmer, though, I think uh, Wisconsin <laughs> in October, November would be pretty chilly. Yeah. Well, there's heat. <laughs> All right. Yeah. There's enough. There's enough horse shit to keep us warm. There's enough horse shit to keep us right. <laughs> Thanks, guys. You take good care. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Take care. Bye-bye. The Medicine Path is produced by Brian James on unceded Coast Salish territory, Vancouver Island, Canada. For more information, visit brianjames.ca. Music by Olive Artizoni, a.k.a. Greenhouse. Join the Medicine Path tribe and gain early access to episodes and the full podcast archives at patreon.com forward slash medicinepath. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. May the rain fall soft upon your fields. Until the next time we meet on the Medicine Path. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger. Feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. 
There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 